Daniel chapter 4. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Lord's Word is holy. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. And it is authoritative. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in the bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portions be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, by the decision, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream King Nebuchadnezzar saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, 
Let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field. All seven periods of time, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules, his ki- rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would open up Your Word to us, that You would show us by Your Spirit, by Your wisdom, Your control, Your sovereignty, and Your care. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come now to the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel as we go through and we've seen story after story. And this is yet another one of these familiar stories that we've known since perhaps Sunday school. We've been tracing through the history of Nebuchadnezzar. It's not all that has happened to him. There are certainly other annals. There are descriptions of Nebuchadnezzar that are not included here, that are included in the Greek historian Herodotus. There are various inscriptions and papers that can be found in the archaeological digs of Babylon. But what we have been seeing is the history of Nebuchadnezzar that the Lord would have us to see. Because you see, it is really about the Lord God. The Lord God of heaven and his people. That is the significance of the book of Daniel. And so we have seen a man who has come and conquered Jerusalem who has carried away captive the cream of the crop of Judea. And then we saw him attempt to indoctrinate them, to make them Babylonians. And we saw four young men, teenagers, perhaps even on the cusp of adulthood, stand firm against all of the machinery of Babylon and resist. Then we saw 
fear filled the hearts of those who were high up in the echelons of Babylon, as a king filled with fury demanded not only to know the interpretation of a dream, but to know the dream itself. And no one could do this. The wise men said, there's no human being that can do this. This is something for the gods. And Daniel proved that that was correct. Because he told not only the dream, but the interpretation from God. It was an interpretation and a dream that was meant to humble Nebuchadnezzar. To explain to him that human kingdoms are fleeting. Nebuchadnezzar's response, we saw last week, was to simply try and build his kingdom such that God himself could not destroy it. He fancied in his mind that if he built a gigantic golden stick, he could somehow resist the Lord God Almighty. We saw that this is not the case, that there is no resistance for God. And that God is with His people even in the midst of trials and sufferings, in the midst of the fiery furnace. And so now we come here to chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar needs to be taught yet once again that the Lord is King. That He is sovereign. That He is not only the King of His people, He is the King of the nations, the King of all the world. And so we often joke saying the third time is the charm. But here we will see the fourth time that the Lord God will enter into Nebuchadnezzar's life. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things. To see first the king of man. The king of man as Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up as a king with a mighty kingdom. And then we will see the true king of kings. How the Lord God is the king of kings. And then finally, we will see that not only is the Lord God the King of kings, He is the King of the heart. The King of man, the King of kings, and the King of the heart. Let's start then by looking and examining at Nebuchadnezzar's life right now as he is the King of man. We start by looking at the state of the state. That is, the empire of Babylon, the mighty kingdom of Babylon. We might think that it is only in recent times that the state has reached a godlike status, in which, especially as espoused in the tenets of communism, where the state becomes God. God is declared dead, and then the state is declared God. But that is not something that is true only of modern times. It is not only something that believers in the modern day have faced. It is something that has faced the people of God for all time. Because, you see, it is bound up in the heart of man to exalt himself, to exalt his own kingdom, and Babylon was no less. This chapter has actually kind of an interesting opening. Perhaps you're wondering how it opens with Nebuchadnezzar praising the Lord God. And actually, it begins at the end. You see, this fourth chapter is a sort of encyclical letter that Nebuchadnezzar is sending out to his entire kingdom to describe what happened to him in this chapter. And so, we're going to hold off looking at these first few verses in depth because much of what's going to happen there happens later in the chapter. But one thing that this beginning of this chapter reminds us of, it reminds us of the past. Because you see, King Nebuchadnezzar writes this letter to all peoples, nations, and languages. 
It reminds us a bit that the world hasn't changed entirely. Because this is exactly the command that Nebuchadnezzar gave with respect to his image. He called all peoples, all languages, and all tribes and races to come and to worship his image. The world has not really changed in Babylon. But another thing that hasn't changed is that God is in control. God is in control in the midst of the pagan kingdom of Babylon. Because you see, there is a problem at the heart of this kingdom. We had seen before that there is a problem with the kingdom of man as it crumbles down to feet of clay. But here in Babylon, in the golden kingdom of the image of chapter 2, we see here that there is a problem right at its heart. The problem is that it is ruled by a man who has the heart of a beast. A man who is bound up in sin, who is a slave to his own passions. We've seen that before in his anger and in his frustration. And now the Lord God will make this obvious to us. That's what's going on in the kingdom of Babylon. But I don't want us to forget also the state of the story. This chapter comes in a context. The central concern of this chapter is the same as chapter 3. The same as chapter 2. And it's the same as chapter 1. And that is, who is the supreme king? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Or is it the Lord God? You see, this is the challenge that faces believers to wonder, who is the supreme king? Is it the president? Is it the Constitution? Or is it the Lord God? Is it the Politburo? Or is it the Lord God? This is the challenge that faces us. And now we have another dream that comes in to bring this into focus. Except for this time, we're not faced with an image, whether a statue or one constructed by Nebuchadnezzar. We are faced now with a tree. It's an interesting imagery. And you can imagine as the dream begins, perhaps, Nebuchadnezzar being soothed by this dream. This is a tree that grows great and large. It can be seen throughout all the earth. It reaches up to the heavens. Have you ever seen a tree kind of like that? Large, old tree with huge branches. Leaves everywhere. Where perhaps a dozen or two dozen can get under for shade. You see the magnificence of it. And it's not just that it's beautiful. You walk up to a tree like that and what do you do? You bang on it. And we say that's what? Solid as wood. This tree isn't going anywhere, ever. We think about perhaps the trees that are found in the forests and the parks of California. Or in the Pacific Northwest. These great gigantic redwoods that are so old to ensure how old they are. Gigantic. Some of them are fossilized old. The tree here is a symbol of enduring power and might. It shows the beauty of the kingdom. It shows the power of the kingdom. And it shows the wealth of the kingdom as animals and birds from all around come to feed from it and under it. This is the continuation of what we have been seeing in previous chapters. This is the state of the story. But then as we turn and think about 
Nebuchadnezzar and his reaction to the dream, we think about his state of mind. This is a different dream. There is a different object. But there really isn't a lot of change, is there? Nebuchadnezzar has seen men walk through fire and come out unburned. He has seen a man not only interpret his dream, but tell it to him when no one else could. One would think that perhaps he would get the message. But like so many of us, he remains stuck in a rut. He remains stubborn in his rebellion against God. And so we have, even though these two previous incidents have occurred, the first thing that happens when this dream comes to him is he calls for his wise men. Just as he did in chapter 2. He saw this dream and it made him afraid. It affected him. He needed an answer. He was disturbed. He went from a place of ease and prosperity. The kind of ease that you get, maybe on a, on a day like today when it's cold, and you get in the house and the heat's turned up good, and you find that right spot in the couch, not the spot that your kids beat you to, and you have to sit in the other, that perfect spot that, where your head indents in perfectly, the nap spot, and out, and you think to yourself, I'm warm and I'm comfortable. Life is perfect. That's where Nebuchadnezzar was. He was in his spot. He had everything he could need. He had all ease. And yet this dream with the tree being cut down so disturbs him that he calls for the wise men, the magicians, the enchanters, and the Chaldeans. And they come in. Now, he's learned a little bit. He's learned that he can't expect them to tell him the dream. They're batting zero on that. So he says, well, what I will do is I will tell you the dream. And you can interpret it for me. Now, the thing that is curious about this is not necessarily the fact that the wise men can't interpret the dream. It's the fact that they don't even offer an interpretation. You know, as we listen to this, even if you don't go through the interpretation later, you've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. You could fill in the blanks here. Tree, wealth, power, all sorts of subjects, and it gets cut down. This is not good news. You could try at least to make an attempt at interpreting the dream, but no, not the wise men. Maybe perhaps because they've gotten a bit of a feel for Nebuchadnezzar's reactions to things that he doesn't like so much. People tend to lose their heads or arms or have their houses torn down. So they sit here and go, no, we have no idea what that could possibly mean. We don't have the foggiest. I wonder if anyone does. Daniel... Oh, Daniel, he could take the heat. Daniel! And so you see Nebuchadnezzar reacting just as he has done before. And this should not surprise you because actually this is something that the Bible teaches us will happen. It's called a conscience being seared. It's like what happens when you become overly used to something and then you cease to have a reaction to it. It's like working outside with your hands day after day after day after day till you get calluses on them. And then you don't feel them anymore in those spots. It's like when I used to live in the city of Chicago, perhaps some of you have lived into a city. When you first move into a city, it's hard to sleep. There's horns honking, there's people squealing on brakes, there's people having loud conversations at two in the morning. And after a month or so, you don't hear them anymore. You just drown them out. 
You become used to it. That's what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar. God has been speaking to him through a giant megaphone. And all he is doing is ignoring it. Now, we do see a little small bit of a change in his reaction to Daniel. When Daniel walks in, he's pleased. He says, Daniel, please, could you interpret this dream for me? Now, the question is, is this a genuine change or is it perhaps just pragmatism? To honor Daniel to some extent. Well, we're not sure, but I think we need to think about this for ourselves. Do we simply do things because we think they will work rather than because it is the right thing to do? Because Nebuchadnezzar is definitely not there. We see this in something that's perhaps hard to see. You notice how throughout the narrative, Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, is used when Nebuchadnezzar is describing what happened in the past. So, during this entire incident, he's being called by his Babylonian name. Afterwards, through the change, you'll notice Daniel is used. When he's describing it, he says, and Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. So there is a slight change here, but he's not completely there because Daniel is not described as the one who serves the living God. He's described in verse 9 as the chief of the magicians. So I want us to think about that, that here we have a man who has been given opportunities, who has been clearly shown the power of God. Not once, not twice, not three times, but now a fourth time. Think about that the next time you wonder why you didn't see the signs. Think about that the next time a dear friend of yours who you just can't understand why they can't see the gospel, can't. Well, what happens here? The king of man is here in all his glory, but he is disturbed. And Daniel explains to him about the king of kings yet again. Daniel comes in, and he is dismayed for a while, in verse 19. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king says to him, Daniel, don't be concerned. Don't be alarmed. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. And Daniel says, I really wish this would be a dream for your enemies. That they would be the ones that would get the result of this. But I will tell you the interpretation. Now, I want you to see something about this warning that comes from God. And is interpreted by Daniel. Daniel does not walk into Nebuchadnezzar and say, Well, you know, you're finally going to get it, you miserable, rotten, pagan king. If you'd only listen to the Bible, if you weren't so stupid, you would know what was going on. This is what happens when you mess with God. I hope he strikes you down in half the time. Let me tell you how much glee. We're going to have a party afterwards. We're going to have a half prayer meeting, half party after we find out what happened. You see, sometimes that's our reaction, isn't it? We see something in the news in which it goes ill for someone who's a prominent evolutionist or a prominent atheist or someone who oppresses the church of God and we are gleeful. We can't wait to type up an email in big letters and send it out to everyone. We are rejoicing in the fact that they are being crushed under the hand of God. But you see, Daniel's a little bit different. He doesn't pull any punches. 
but he actually is concerned for those who are around him. He doesn't like what Nebuchadnezzar does, but he wants to see Nebuchadnezzar changed. It's this kind of a biblical principle that Saul, that is Paul, is always to be preferred to Herod. You remember Herod when he was struck down and eaten of worms because he declared that he was like a god? The Christian always desires God's power to be seen in the mercy and conversion and grace of the wickedest of sinners. Because it shows how powerful he is and how much in control he is. Daniel comes up to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him, you know, this can all be averted. It can all be avoided. He describes for him what will happen, how the kingdom will be taken from him, how he will be driven out, how he will have a mind of a beast, how the dew of heaven will rain down upon him. And so he says, you need to think about this, Nebuchadnezzar. You need to repent. Now, the first thing we need to be cautious about is this text is not provided for us to psychoanalyze Nebuchadnezzar. We are not here to be Dr. Phil. And, describe, and to try and find which clinical malady Nebuchadnezzar experiences. The focus here is not upon the insanity. The focus here is upon the Lord God and His declaration. And His declaration that causes the insanity. You see, we are to see not Nebuchadnezzar and his mindset. We are to see the mindset of God as He declares what the reality of the universe is. And then what we will see is, going against the reality of the universe is just what we would expect. It's crazy. It's insane to go against the truth of the universe as laid down by the Lord God. You see, God puts out this crisis to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And if we are honest, this can often be the case with us. Isn't that so? There are often crises that come into our lives, whether it is a job situation, illness, marital problems. God takes us by the shoulders and focuses us upon Him. Everything else that seems so important fades into the background. The vacation planning does not seem so important after we've gotten a bad test result from the doctor. Is it? Where our children will go to college 15 years from now doesn't seem so important when we're struggling with our spouse. And you see, God does this. He gets our attention. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, we are faced with a choice. We can go out on our own and resist God, or we can take the wisdom of God in making these decisions. Now, don't expect to fall asleep tonight and get a dream of a tree or a bush or anything else to tell you, where you should have a job, or where you should go to school. But you do have a revelation from God. It's called the Bible. And so when we are faced with difficult career decisions, or when we are faced with difficult decisions as to where we should go to school, or who we should marry, we are to take God's wisdom and apply it to our own lives. Not to kick against God. Do you seek God's wisdom in His Word? Because, you see, that is the difference between a child of God and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was given the wisdom of God over and over again. And he ignored it. When it was inconvenient, 
plugged his ears. He didn't want to hear it. That may even be why Daniel was not called out initially. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar knew that Daniel would call him on the carpet and he said, let's hold him in reserve. Let me get some smooth words from my wise men that will help me. You see, often if we are not careful, this can happen to us as well. And you see, Daniel's answer is actually quite simple. There's no magic. There's no ritual. There's no mumbo-jumbo. There is simply a challenge to the very soul of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, Therefore, O king, in verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see, Daniel gives him the warning of God. And he gives it to him in a challenge. You need to repent. And I know that Daniel was not a reader of the Westminster Confession or Catechisms. But I think that our standards summarize the teaching of the Scripture, especially here. You see, Daniel calls upon Nebuchadnezzar to repent, but as our standards say, to repent of particular sins particularly. He doesn't just say, be a nice guy. He says, you see out there all those things you built and all you're so happy about? The big golden stick, the temples, all this other thing? You're oppressing the poor. Those people over there are dying. They can't have food. They don't have clean water. Be a king, king. Repent. Be righteous. This is the warning that comes from God through Daniel. But the sadness is that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't hear the warning. You see, oftentimes we think in our own lives and the lives of others around us, if we only had a warning, if we only knew, then our excuses would be stripped away. Then we could follow God. If we only knew this was how we were supposed to treat our wife. If I only knew this was how I was supposed to treat my children. Oh, I didn't know I was supposed to work like this. When the truth is, the warnings come from God and His Word all the time to us. They come all the time. That's why Romans 1 says man is without excuse. Because you see, God is constantly warning. God is patient beyond anything we could imagine. Because you see, it's 12 months later that he walks out on the roof and he says, Ooh, look at what I have built. Look at what I have done. Look at how great I am. Twelve months later. How many of you could have twelve months patience with your children for not cleaning their room? How many of you young people could have twelve months patience with your parents for fulfilling a promise? Do you have that kind of patience? I don't know about you, but it's not like that in my household. I can't have 12 months of patience over a room. And it doesn't take too long before the words, but you promised, come out. But you see, God is long-suffering. He is patient. But what this text teaches us is that God's patience wears out. It is not an eternal patience. 
Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar walks out, and as the words are coming off his lips, a pronouncement of judgment comes down from heaven. You will be driven out. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof, and the words were still in his mouth, and a voice fell from heaven and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Not may, not Will in a half a day, not maybe, now. You've had your chance. Don't come blubbering to me now. You had 12 months. You didn't even deserve the warning. That was of grace. You certainly didn't deserve a month. That was of grace. You didn't deserve 12 months. That was of grace. And now my judgment will rain down. And so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar is driven out of his kingdom. He is humbled beyond anything that he could imagine. This is kind of like the fictional stories that you hear about, about the great captain of industry, the CEO of the company that gets fired from his job, his expense report taken from him, his company car taken from him, his clothes taken from him and thrown out like a bum on the street. What does he do? He can't even think. You've seen these sorts of comedies. He doesn't even know how to order at a restaurant, like a McDonald's, because he's never been to a McDonald's. He doesn't know how to drive because he's had a driver. He doesn't know how to work a laundromat. He doesn't know how to do anything. This is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, the man who is used to being waited on hand and foot, the man who is used to having every word of his obeyed, is now nothing. He's worse than nothing. He's been driven out from his kingdom. But more than that, he's been driven out of his mind. He thinks he's some sort of animal. That part of the dream has come true. His hair will grow like eagle's feathers. His fingers will be like talons or claws as the nails grow long. You've seen those in the Guinness Book of Records with the big, long nails. He's going to run around in the grass. He's going to eat grass. He's going to live like an animal. He's going to be a beast. He's not going to be a humble man. He's going to be like a dog or a bear or a cow living out. He doesn't even have the sense that when it rains to get out of the rain. Think about that. This is humbling. This is crazy. Because being crazy... Insanity is a result of provoking God. Throughout the scriptures, showing pride and willful rebellion against God is a sign of insanity. You remember the story of the prodigal son? You remember what happened to him? How he went out and spent all his money, and then he was sitting there eating with the pigs, because he had no more money, he had left his father, he had sinned. And then what happens to him? In Luke fifteen seventeen, the text tells us he came to himself. He came into his right mind. And coming into his right mind, he realized that rebellion is crazy. It's insanity. I'm going to clean myself up and I'm going to submit. This is a judgment of God. Romans 1 verse 28 says that a judgment of rebellion against God is being given over to a debased mind. You see, you don't see reality as it is. And should this surprise us? Because sin is insanity. 
If you are in rebellion against the Lord God right now, you need to see the error of your ways. Do not make it take running around out in the grass to show you. Who would choose death over life? Who would build a house on sand instead of a rock? It doesn't make any sense at all. And you see, that's what it is like to look out and to see the order of the universe, to see the sun set perfectly distant from the earth so that we are not an ice cube or a flame ball. To look out and see the seasons come and go. To see that we plant seed and food comes up out of the ground. To see all of that and say, well, you know, this probably just happened by chance. Is insane. But it's just as insane to say, well, I understand all that. And God's, he does a pretty good job with the world. But, you know, he's not really involved in my life. He doesn't know what I'm doing. Somehow I've got a cone of silence around me. And God doesn't hear what I say. He doesn't see what I see. He doesn't know what I think. I'm the only one. He knows what you do, and I'll point it out to you. But I have the cone of silence. That's insane. God knows not only every blade of grass. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every thought you have. You see, God is the God not only of the universe. He is the God of you. You cannot get away from him. Sin is insanity. You see, Peter describes this. He says, those who blaspheme God, in 2 Peter 2, verse 12, he says, they're like brute beasts. You think he was taught this story in Sunday school? I think so. Like brute beasts. God is showing Nebuchadnezzar that he is the king of kings. But God is not just the king of kings. He is also the king of the heart. And we see that here in what happens. Nebuchadnezzar goes out and he is out amongst the animals for seven periods of time. We don't know what this is. The original language is seven periods of time. It could be days. It could be months. It could be years. It's really not important What's important is that God is completely in control, completely controlling Nebuchadnezzar. There is nothing he can do to reform himself. He doesn't have a pocket ring to get the hair off himself. He's not going to be fixed by a couple of pairs of big nail clippers. He is completely at the mercy of God. And so then what happens here in verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now notice, lifted my eyes to heaven. Let your eye glance up a little closer to verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof, and he answered and said, Is this not the kingdom? His eyes were on what he had done, and now his eyes are lifted to where? To heaven. You see, he begins with repentance. And repentance is the only cure for insanity and sin. Repentance. Sanity begins with a realistic self-appraisal. You see, we become sane when we understand that we are not God. That we are not in control. That we are not perfect. That we are not better than everyone else. That we are not more deserving. That we are not 
privileged. You see, a, a self-assessment comes upon us and we see our own sin. It's also important, though, in having a self-assessment to also have an, a God-assessment. Because we can only really understand our own sin when we understand the perfection of God. This is the cure for insanity. This is the cure for sin. It's called repentance. And it is easy to be blinded. You see, especially when things are going well, and especially when we are good, when we are doing the task that we ought to, for example, as a parent. And people come alongside us over and over again and encourage us. You're such a wonderful parent. You have such a wonderful family. Or when we're a very hard worker, you know you are great. I love the way that you finish things off. I love the way that you you give of yourself. I love the service that you provide. And you see, in the midst of that, we can forget who we are. So that even those who are good find this difficulty. Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe someone has come to you, maybe it was around Christmas time, and said to you, you know, you need to be right with God, and the only way to be right with God is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say to yourself, my neighbors think I'm a pretty good guy. My wife thinks I'm a pretty good guy. Even my boss thinks I'm a pretty good guy. Maybe for drug addicts, and maybe for people who beat their wives, but no, I don't need this crutch, this Jesus. I'm a pretty good guy. The Scripture says otherwise. You must have a realistic self-assessment. Only there can repentance begin. And you see, once repentance has begun, then that is when restoration occurs. Nebuchadnezzar looks up to heaven and his reason returns to him. Because you see, the truth of the Scriptures, Christian, the comfort of the Scriptures is not only that God humbles the proud, but that He exalts the humble. The Lord delights in that because it shows His power and His grace. Do you remember that line from Mary's speech in Luke 1, verses 51 and 52? How when she hears the news, one of the things that causes her great joy is to know that God humbles the proud, but He exalts the humble like her. A teenage girl in a backwater town of Judea. You see, this is how God lifts up the humble. And it tells us that true restoration can only come by grace. You see, Nebuchadnezzar has seen miracles. Don't say to yourself, well, if I see somebody turn water into wine or walk on water, well, then I'll believe in Jesus. He saw someone come in and out of fire and not even smell smoke. Nebuchadnezzar had revelation from God. Don't say, well, if I had a dream in which God showed me the purpose of my life, then I would listen to him. Nebuchadnezzar had that. It is only by the grace of God that this comes to him. It is only by the grace of God that we see that when we are humbled, God is at work in our lives. That is our restored. Well, this is all well and good for a king of Babylon, for a pagan emperor. This is good for him. He can repent. He can be restored. But what does this mean for us? For us, this chapter is a reminder. It's a reminder first to the people of Israel. They should be watching it. Daniel and his friends should be watching this. Because you see, they too were cut down for their pride. 
They were proud in the fact that they were the children of Abraham and there was no way that God could ever punish them. Look how bad the Assyrians are. Look how bad the Babylonians are. But you know, Isaiah says in chapter 6 that they will be cut down like a... Any guesses? Tree. This is a warning too then for us. We should be watching. We should not sit here and look at each other and say, you know, there are some rotten people out there. Glad we're not them. You see, we need to have constant repentance and restoration in our own lives. We need to know the living God daily. You see, the gospel is humbling. It is not about how great we are. Oftentimes, this is a a canard that is thrown out that those of you that believe in divine election, you're so proud of yourself. No! God chose me, and I'm completely worthless. There's nothing in me. I'm a miserable wretch of a sinner. If you knew what a sinner I was, you wouldn't come to my house. The problem and the truth of that is, I wouldn't come to yours either. But Jesus Christ saves sinners. That is the truth of the Scripture here. And to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be willing to let go of what is valuable. To let go of the Babylon that we have built. And let God be sovereign. You need to repent of the nonsense, the insanity of the bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. He is not. God is the pilot of your life. The Lord Jesus Christ is in control and there is found health. There is found life. There is found meaning. Learn from Nebuchadnezzar. Put all of your trust and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will exalt you if you are humble. He will lift you up out of the crisis of your life. 